series we've been watching a little visual teaching tool to give you an overview of each of the chapters, and we're going to see Ruth chapter 3 tonight. In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ruth gleans in the fields of a man named Boaz. He is a righteous man who sees her and gives her additional food and water, telling her to only work in his fields so that she can be safe and well taken care of. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi of what happened, and Naomi agrees that she should stay in those fields because Boaz is actually a close relative of theirs. So Ruth gleans in the fields belonging to Boaz until the end of the harvest. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing whether Ruth should get married again. Naomi points out that Boaz is single and that there is an opportunity for Ruth to talk to him that very night. Naomi says, He'll be working on the threshing floor tonight. Get dressed nice and go to him. Wait until he's done working, has had his meal, and has lied down. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down at his feet, and he will then tell you what to do. Ruth goes to the threshing floor and does as Naomi told her. She waits for Boaz to finish working and having his meal until he is lying down to sleep. Ruth goes over, uncovers his feet, and lies there. Around midnight, Boaz woke up, startled, and asks, Who are you? Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth was asking Boaz to marry her and rescue her family. Boaz responds, May the Lord bless you for your kindness. You did not go after the young men, rich or poor, but instead chose me. I will do as you ask, for the entire town knows that you are worthy. However, the law says that there is one more person between you and I that should redeem your family. If he does, that is a good thing. If he isn't willing, then I will surely redeem you. So she slept there until morning, but arose before the morning light so that people did not see where she came from. Before she left, Boaz gave six measures of barley for Ruth and her mother-in-law. When Ruth had returned, Naomi asks how it went. Ruth shows the barley and tells her what had happened, and Naomi says, Be patient, my daughter. We will see what happens soon enough, for he will not rest until the matter is settled today. Therefore, Ruth and Naomi wait to see if Boaz will marry Ruth and redeem their family. Ruth chapter 3, if you'll turn there. The Redeemer of Bethlehem. What a good Old Testament story for us as we think about Christmas and the true Redeemer from Bethlehem and Jesus. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 3 tonight. And we're going to do a couple of, I hope, enjoyable and helpful little biblical theology studies. Biblical theology is running uh, from the beginning through the Bible to the end a theme. Uh, Oftentimes a word or a concept or a phrase that runs throughout the Bible. And our story happens to be bracketed by it tonight. And it's mentioned four times in Ruth. 
in chapter 1 and verse 9, 2, 7, and then R2 in our passage, chapter 3 and verse 1 and verse 18. It's the theme of rest. It's not probably one that um, most of God's people are that familiar with, but I think it's a good one tonight, and I'm going to show you how it applies to the picture of salvation that's being painted through the life of Ruth in this chapter. Let me highlight it for you in chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it might be well with you? Now, just to give you a little reminder of what we've already covered, she says this in a completely different context, in a completely different frame of mind, heart attitude, when her life was full of emptiness and bitterness. In chapter 1, if you look over there in verse 9, to give you a contrast, the Lord grant you, she's talking to Orpah, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, including Ruth at that time, you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. You know, she knows that that's a false rest because you're not going to find it if you go back to the gods of Moab. Chemosh was their god, and it was a horrific god. And uh, there was no rest there. Naomi knew that, but she was so embittered and, and so angry at that time in her life and so empty that she just told him to go home and try to find some level of rest there. But she's totally changed her tune since she got back to Bethlehem and things are beginning to be reversed in her life. And so she says in this passage, chapter 3 and verse 1, that she's now seeking rest, but not from the gods of Moab, but from her God, the true God, and she's seeking it for Ruth. Now, by the end of the chapter, and we can read everything in between with these two brackets, at the end of chapter 3 and verse 18, it reads, She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so we have her, first of all, seeking rest for Ruth, and then saying that Boaz, actually that Ruth herself can rest, because Boaz is seeking it for her. Um, who would like to tell me, if you, I'm going to stretch a little bit tonight, who would like to tell me the common thread or the theme that runs through the Bible about rest? Give me a passage of the Bible or something that you're familiar with, or at least know perhaps a little bit about, about the rest that God promised us. And if you're not sure already, rest doesn't mean I'm tired and I would like to get some rest that I hope you'll get over the, you know, the Christmas season if you get off some time from work. You might need that too, and that's always good. And, it, it, and it's not that it doesn't have that feature in the sense that it's, whole, it's a wholeness. It's a ki different kind of rest. And it's a rest from God, says when he created the world. I'll give you the first one. Chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3 of Genesis, God created the world six days, and it said he, he rested. That's the Sabbath rest, Right? So God rested, but there's more than that. Do you know of other passages, other ideas, other things that go with rest? Chris? Okay, yep, that skipped it up there a little bit. Good. Matthew eleven twenty eight. that's where we're headed. Jesus said, can we all do it together? Come unto me. Yeah, all you labor heavy laden. I'm going King James on you here. And I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy Yes, and you'll find rest for your... So twice in that passage, he says, you can find rest. And I'm going to come back and tell you what that means in a little bit. But there's some in between Genesis and 
Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28-30. Do you remember any of them? There's a Sabbath rest that God has given his people. And if they didn't keep the Sabbath and they disobeyed his laws, they wouldn't get that rest, right? But there's another rest, not just the Sabbath rest. What was the other rest that God promised people, his people Israel? Yes. Um, Jubilee is the ultimate freedom. Yes, and that's kind of goes with the Sabbath. So there's a creation rest. Jubilee is a freedom. That, that was the ultimate rest of all the 70, you know, 50 years in a row there, four sevens, right? Um, what else is there? Ray? Right, there's Hebrews 4, right, that talks about the rest that if, if that was the final rest, so we know there are preceding rests, because the writer of Hebrews, which I think is Paul, Paul, I, I would say, if he promised, God said there was a rest, a final rest, then it wasn't Joshua, though. That's the whole point. Joshua did not give. If you read the last chapter of Joshua, it says, and God gave them rest. But it wasn't the final rest, because they didn't conquer all of the enemies of God in Canaan, did they? In fact, if you read throughout the kings, First and Kings, Second Kings, and, and, and so forth, you'll find that this is a common phrase and that they beat these enemies and they had rest, but then it would say, for so many years. So they would have rest and maybe some of the judges would bring the rest, the kings would be rest, but it was only for a segment of time and there was always a problem because more enemies would come up, more people that would oppose God's people, and sometimes it was God's people themselves that were disobedient to the word and to Torah, and so they, dis, they did not have rest. And, then, and here's the phrase, not too often repeated, but they would have no rest. They had no rest for these amount of years. But that was because they disobeyed. Now what is that rest tied to that Hebrews 4 is talking about? That's different than the creation rest. That was the rest that was first promised when and to who? Do you remember when it happened? Well, you know, it's Joshua that was trying to fulfill it. So who was it given to first? Well, it's given to Moses, and it's an exodus. They've come out of Egypt, and they've been slaves for 400 years. And God said, if they obeyed him, that he would bring them into the promised land, and he would give them rest. He would give them rest from all of their enemies. But it didn't happen in Moses' day. In fact, he didn't make it into the promised land. Joshua conquered a lot of the land and a lot of the peoples, but not all of them. And so that's why Ray mentions in Hebrews 4, it's not a full rest. It wasn't a full rest under Joshua. Although if you don't know, I hope you know that Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Joshua, it's the Hebrew, Yeshua. Hosea is the same name. All those are the same name. And so but the Joshua, the first Joshua didn't give it. Now let me go to my wife's passage. But Jesus did. That's what the New Testament brings, and that's why it's called biblical theology. It starts in Genesis, and the creation rests, and the, the exodus rests, so to speak, the promised land rests, are tied together, right? And they work together, and God says that that fulfillment can't be fully achieved until you find that rest in Jesus. And you can come to him, and he will give you rest. And if you go to the end of the Bible, even... And you even look in passages like Revelation 14, 
there'll be places where it says, and those were martyred and things, he finally gives them rest from all the labors that they did uh, for his name. And so God has promised a rest to his people. And so here's the rest. It's the salvation rest. It's the I'm in the wilderness wanderings. That's where they were. They didn't have any rest. They wandered for 40 years, and they get to the promised land, and they were looking to have the rest that God gave them. Now, in our text, if you look at the book in chapter 3, it says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it might be well with you? That, and during this time, it's the, he's threshing wheat, or I should say barley, and this was associated with the Feast of the Booths. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Sukkot in Hebrew, it is. Feast of the Tabernacles, it's often called. And they would live out inside little booths, and they would do this for an entire week. It was instructed in the Bible. It was the last of the fall, one of the last fall feasts. And they would do it, a couple reasons they would have it. They would praise God for all the way that he provided for them, because in the promised land, he said he would provide all that they needed. And all the fall feasts at the end, they had the harvest and everything had God provided for them physically. But what most of all, that they remembered that they were sojourners, that the promised land was not given to them as an achievement of their own merit. It was not even given to them as a reward for being good. That what they live out in the booze were because God gave them that promised land. And he rehearses such phrases before them that when you came into the promised land, you lived in houses that you didn't build and you had fields that you didn't sow. And he, he, God said, I gave you all of this. The promised land, the rest that God promised them was a gift. Now what you're going to find as you read through the book of Ruth, there's a lot of Exodus language, even at the very beginning, they don't say it in the English versions, and I've looked at most of them. But it says in the description of Ruth and, Ruth and Naomi that they were in Moab and they remained there for 10 years. And it's the same word used of Israel, and it says sojourned. They sojourned for 10 years. Now, that's what God brings them out of, because when you have rest, you have rest from something. And they've had, and they're looking for rest because they've been out of Israel for 10 years. And God has brought them back to Israel. He's brought them back to the house of bread. He's done all that. And he's beginning to reverse their stories. And that's what God does when he gives rest. So that's why I, I call this chapter, if I had a title for it, The Quest for Rest. Because the whole book has been pointing to finding rest, not the ones that Chemosh and the Moabites can offer, because that didn't do anything but bring death. But now you have Jesus is offering it. And what you're going to find is, is that when you find rest, it's the op opposite of emptiness, which, if you want to write it down, is another big theme that you can study through. Even Naomi herself said, you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She goes, I'm bitter. I went, out, I, I went away, I came, I'm sorry, I left full, but I came back empty, right? So she says that. And then in our story, I don't know if you caught it on the screen, but when, before Ruth goes back, home in the morning, early hours of the morning, he gives her six uh, big things of barley that he puts the, in her, like an apron that she was wearing with a dress that she had on. But he wants her to go back because, I, in the, literally in the, in the Hebrew, it says, don't go back to Naomi empty. And, and again, God just says, here's what I'm doing. Here's what salvation is. Here's what redemption is. Here's what Boaz is doing for Ruth and Naomi. He's filling up 
empty people, and he's doing it by redeeming them. Now, can I tell you, we, I, 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 Dennis wasn't here last week, but I told his story that he came in and told me in the office about how he said how full his life was, he thought, until he got saved. And I listened to Bob's life tonight and his testimony when he said, you know, I had all these things, and I had this success, I had a family, I had all this stuff, and I thought, that is this all there is? You know, I was listening to that carefully because that really goes with the theme tonight. And, and I don't know how many of you could tell stories or ever heard people tell their salvation stories about how they thought they had it all until they came to know Christ and realized they didn't have anything. And I, I can tell you this, pray for people that way because here's one of the things about being redeemed. You don't get redeemed by Jesus until you first come to the conclusion that you're empty. And that's not easy for people to do in our world. We, we talked about last Sunday, too, that we don't like to admit that we're weak. We like to think that we're strong. We like that we can think that. Have you ever talked to, and again, tonight I'm listening because I'm thinking about, I'm hearing people who are Catholic, and in the Catholic religion, you are going to get redeemed on your own to some degree, right? You're going to work for it. You're going to try to be a good person. You're going to keep, you're going to go by the catechism, and you're going to keep all the sacraments, and you're going to do all the things, and you're going to earn it somehow, even if people have to, you know, do penance you know, for a while in purgatory, which I had someone call me this week, and they asked me the history of purgatory and how can they combat it when they talk to people. But that's where people are. They're earning it. You know, you've only heard this. There's two religions in the world, Christianity and everything else. Christianity is the religion of done, and these are all religion of do. And, and it doesn't matter what form they take, right, because they're all doing in different ways. And, and, and here's what we learn from redemption from her, that you can't do it. And so what do you find out between the two brackets of resting, her needing it and Boaz providing it, that's the brackets, what do you find in the description in between? You find that Ruth and Naomi, Naomi are pictured over and over again as helpless. They're empty, they're helpless, they're powerless, they cannot solve their problems. They cannot find fullness on their own. They cannot find a future on their own. They come to Boaz, and here's what they need. They need more than just bread or food. They need way more than that. They need to have a son. She needs to get married to him because they have no future and no heir at all without any of those things. And they cannot provide them on their own. Now listen, today, one of the doctrines of Scripture is total depravity. You know what total depravity is? And uh, people don't like it. That you cannot come to God on your own. You read chapter 3 of Romans sometimes, and it's a quotation mainly out of Isaiah. But Isaiah pictures this, that there are none who are righteous, no, not one, there are none that seeketh after God. You know, anyone in this room and anyone in this world who's ever got saved was not because you took any steps toward God. God is always the initiator. God is always coming after you. He's always the one that's seeking you. Even though the Bible commands in Isaiah 55 and many other places, actually, that you should seek the Lord. But in our sinfulness, we don't. We cannot. And so it's hard for people to grasp, and, and it's humbling to think that you'll never stand before God someday and kind of put your thing, you know, God, hey, you helped you help me out a lot, but hey, I did this much, and I did, you know, I did this. And remember, 
And God says, you know, if you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 29 through 30, there is no, there's no boasting in heaven. You won't do any of that because God has made it in such a way that his salvation, although foolish to so many, and that's the Greek word moronic, right? It seems so crazy as he has set it up that there is no boasting, that it's all of grace, and, and that's what God does. And you'll find between the two brackets of rest that that's exactly where Naomi and Ruth are. And that's where everyone is. So how does that shape how you pray for lost people? Not only should you pray that they would recognize how empty they are of God in their sin, but because of that emptiness that they won't seek him. They won't come to him. Have you ever said this? You ever been witnessing to someone and I think that, you know, I think they're getting a little closer. Or you think, well, I think they're more interested than they were before. And they may be but they're no closer than they are before unless, and that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, which blew his mind theologically, you must be born again. How many of you had a lot to do in be, being born in this world? How many of you cho- chose that? Anybody choose that? Anybody choose anything to do about your birth or who, born, who brought you in this world? You didn't, right? We don't either spiritually. God handles, does all of that for us, Right? So the Bible says you have to understand you're empty. Now, in between, it's beautiful, and we don't have a ton of time, but in between the, the passage, it tells about how they come up with this, you know, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, here's what you're going to do. Now, here's the risky part. Now, listen to this. And God's love is crazy scandalous, not because it's wrong or, you know, inappropriate anyway, but she goes to the threshing floor. Now, again, this is where the discipline. Remember I told you there's a difference between reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and studying the Bible. Those all three should be done, but they are not the same. So you really haven't, I'm saying like, if you read the Bible, you haven't studied it or memorized it. They're, they're all good. You got to do them all, but you have to really work at doing them all. But if you read the Bible, that's why it's good to read the Bible. Bob's got this, this, the uh, thing you can use that, you know, the, out there in the booth out there, the schedule for reading through a year. If you read the Bible, you'd come up to Passages like Hosea 9.1 and other passages that say threshing floors were very common places where a lot of immorality with prostitutes took place. It was very commonplace. And so when you go there and you see that she's going at night and he's on a threshing floor and she's going to see him in the cover of night and she uncovers his feet, those are kind of terms that you would normally think of as being immoral terms. But what she's doing is basically sitting down at his feet, he's sleeping, untucks his feet, so to speak, with the covers or wherever's there, and she waits for him to respond. Now, he responds graciously because she's basically asking him to marry her. So that would not be normal in any way, shape, or form. But don't forget, she's a Moabitess. She's a foreigner. And she's using, so she wants him to know that she needs him to redeem her. And, and so she comes and says, I'm your servant. So she comes in very humble. So it's not an inappropriate scene in any way or an immoral scene in any way. What she's doing him is she actually is following Torah and asking him to do as a close relative what he would, should do uh, for her family, although he doesn't have to. Um, and so it's a beautiful scene. In fact, the Bible says, and there's three verbs 
that talk about, she, she goes, Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth, go get washed, bathe, and anoint yourself, and put on these clothes. If you read Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, and other places, those verbs all put together are often words that describe someone who's getting married. And so she not only went there to ask him to get married, but she looked the part, the role. She is really, all the way that she literally looks, and I'm not going to lie to you, they didn't take showers or baths every day. So to take a wash yourself was something that we do all the time. They didn't, and she certainly didn't, as we're the station in life that she was. But she did on this night because she wanted to look her best, right? She wants to be the bride that he would want to have in her life, in his life. So she does all that. She's the bride, and she's asking him to get married. But you know what? This is the great God that he is. Here's the Hebrew word. He is Sadiq. Sadiq means righteous. It means he was a law keeper. He followed Torah. And as much as he seems to care about her, and he's demonstrated all throughout the book so far, how he takes care of her needs, that he says, there is one closer than me. Now, by the end of the chapter, that guy that was closer than her, or next chapter, doesn't do it. And he get, you know, we'll talk about the shoe ceremony next week. But here's what happens. He follows the law. See, he, see, Jesus is the greater Boaz. And although she can't redeem herself and cannot help Ruth and Naomi's family at all, he can. And so she presents herself. Now, now last thing I want to show you in this chapter is a theme that's very prevalent, and I want to put your theology hats on again. Ready? Here's our second biblical theology theme tonight. And I want to show you the progression in this chapter, and then I want you to talk about it with me as we close what it has throughout the Bible. It's a picture of salvation. Notice, follow me through the verses, the progression from darkness to light. Okay? No accidents, in my, in my opinion. Chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, He is winnowing barley tonight. So she says, Here's where he's going to be when it gets dark. Okay? But the idea, in fact, look throughout all the book of Ruth. Timing statements are crucial. There's a reason why they put them in there, all right? Chapter 3 and verse 8. Now, he's startled, he's startled and wakes up because she's at his feet, but it says in chapter 3 and verse 8 that that happens at midnight. So that's pretty dark at the top of the climax of the night. He wakes up, has this conversation with her. Notice the next progression, chapter 3 and verse 13. He says, remain tonight, and then two times he mentions it, in the morning, and stay here until the morning, and in the morning, here's what you're going to do. And then at the end of the chapter, we get the whole thing from darkness completely into light. In chapter 3, and verse 18, Ruth says, don't worry, because he's not going to rest until he settles it today. Today. So you go from, it's going to be dark, it's midnight, she stays there through the night, and in the morning, everything changes because sometime in the daytime, next day, she is going to be, and Ruth is going to, Naomi is going to be completely redeemed. Now, that is a very prevalent redemptive pattern throughout all of Scripture, biblical theology, starting from the beginning all the way to the end. Tell me a story in the Bible that uses that redemptive pattern from darkness to light. You can start as early as you want. And this is the Genesis. Give me the Genesis one because that's the obvious one. Let me ask you in creation. Do you know your details? What was first in creation, darkness or light? 
Yeah, darkness was first, right? We, we didn't have light first. Darkness came, and then what happened later? Yes, tell me something about how Jewish people run their days, class. How do their days go? When does the day start, truthfully? Yes, well, 6 p.m., right, to the next 6 p.m. So when Jesus was taken off the cross, remember, it was just after 3 o'clock, and what was the hurry because Sabbath was coming? What was the hurry if he had been taken off the cross a little after 3? What happened at 6? The Sabbath started not on Saturday morning, Friday night at 6. Right? So they had to get him in the tomb and do all the things they needed to do for him. And they only had a couple hours to do it. Thankfully, the tomb was close to where the cross was, and they were able to get all that done. But that's how it works in creation. Not only was darkness overall first and then the light, but that's how God runs days. Days from, go from dark to light. Every day we're supposed to be reminded of that pattern. When we look at the sky and see creation, we go through a day. That's how God works. That's what he's done to redeem us. Tell me another one. Tell me, tell me let's go from Genesis to Exodus. Yes. Well, I'm going to let you come back to that. Right, you're jumping ahead of me there, yeah. You, it's a great one, though. Keep that one. I'm going to come right back to you. What about, what about Exodus? Let's talk about Passover. How did it work? What happened at Passover? Say it. Yeah, there was darkness everywhere but where? All over except Goshen, right? Darkness, with all the Egyptians had darkness, right? But not God's people. God's people didn't have that, right? So there was the Exodus and Passover and the darkness filled the land, Right? And the Passover angel came through. What happened at the, when they left Israel, left and were, got the exodus, what time of the day did they go out? The Passover meal happens at nighttime, right? And they, remember they had to hurry and make haste. They had to leave in the middle of the night. Remember that? Right. So when, you, when they came to the Red Sea, do you remember what the Bible says in Exodus 14 about the timing of all of this? Do you remember? It, it actually says the timing. When did they get to the Red Sea where they couldn't get through? It was almost dark, right? And then Egypt, the Pharaoh comes after them, right? And what goes between them? Not the cloudy pillar. Yeah, the pillar of fire. Why? Because it was nighttime, and that's when the, night, the pillar, pillar of fire comes down. And so... What time of night? I don't know if you ever thought about this. Do you know when they crossed the Red Sea on dry land? At midnight. Like our story says. At midnight. So imagine they're going through the Red Sea. The fiery pillar, right, is behind them to keep them away. And they're walking through the middle of all that water and everything is, but it's completely dark at night. How about a walk of faith? That one is, right? Right? And they get to the other side, and there's two to three million of them, so that might take a little time, like all night long. And when they get to the other side, what does the Bible say? What time is it? When the day was just breaking. At the very beginning in the morning, they come, and then Pharaoh's coming through the Red Sea in the, in the light. Right? He's trying to make it through, but what happened? Oh, he doesn't make it. And all the God's enemies are drowned in there. And they celebrate because there's been a new day. Now they're free, right? 
So you got the Passover, you got the Red Sea crossing, and then Mike's going to tell us about the one he was going to say. Yeah, so Jesus was crucified, and although it wasn't officially really dark out yet, it was dark, that was the supernatural darkness that God gave. And so when was Jesus raised from the dead? At the very, very early in the morning. Now see what God does? That's the pattern of how God works redemption. He brings people out of darkness into the light. You know how Ruth and Naomi get rest from Boaz? See, it happens that she makes the request to become his bride in the middle of the night at midnight. And that's not the only midnight. Go by, by the way, let me just listen, listen to this. When did Paul and Silas sing praises to God in the Philippian jail? When does it say? It doesn't just say at night, although it was. What time? Oh, at midnight. See, they're, they're, let me tell you, don't run over things in the Bible real quickly because they, they have significance. God reverses things in the darkest night of your life. Now, we've celebrated that tonight because he does that in our salvation. But can I tell you, it's not just when he redeems us. He continues to reverse things. In the worst times possible, in the darkest times, in the midnights of your life, Jesus and God has the power to change everything. See, he did that for Ruth and Naomi. He did that. See, at Christmas time, should we not be people who rejoice? God has taken away our darkness and has given us light. And now just go through the New Testament. We don't have time. Romans 13, 12, you know what? The darkness is gone. The light has come. The new light is dawning. I mean, you could go to 1 John and see how the signs of being a Christian is you've gone from darkness into light. God is no darkness at all. And him, he is the light of the, I mean, it's just endless, isn't it? That, that pattern, and I only tell you that tonight so that you might be excited to further study about what God has done for you. Tell him tonight in a moment when we close. Can you tell him, thank you for being my Bethlehem Redeemer. Thank you for taking me when I was in darkness and could never see my way to seek you or find you, that by your rich grace, you gave me redemption and freed me and brought me into light. Would you do that tonight? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll do that. As you're praying tonight, can I tell you, you know what's amazing? There are no miracles in Ruth. There are no supernatural healings. There's no recorded visions or dreams. It's God doing amazing things in ordinary ways. Can I tell you tonight, you may doubt, oh, listen, God does all these wonderful things and reverses people's lives and supernatural this, that, and the darkness. See, but he, I never have any of that supernatural stuff. Oh, can I tell you? He does it still today. He works through ordinary providences and ways in your life. Don't stop believing for one second that God still isn't the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still reverses lives. Pray for someone tonight as you thank him for how he's reversed your life. Would you pray? This season that he might use you to reverse someone else, to bring them to the light that they could see the truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for the rest, the final rest, the fulfilled rest that we have in Jesus. Salvation rest. Thank you, Lord, that we were helpless and hopeless and powerlessness, but you stepped into 
the darkness of our world. I think that song tonight, how many kings stepped down from their throne? How many lords would abandon their home? How many greats have become the least for me? And the answer is only one, Jesus. Thank you so much, Jesus, for coming into our darkness, for bringing your light, shining in our hearts. As 2 Corinthians 4 says, that we reflect the glory of Jesus Christ back to you now. You've taken us from blindness and darkness, and you've given us light. We can see, but there are so many, Lord, people from all the nations around us that cannot see. I pray, Father, that you do a Ruth reversal in their lives and use us, the ordinary Boaz-type people who seek to be sadiq and righteous in your sight, keeping your word so that you might use us to bring your redemption to a world that still sits in darkness. Please shine your light through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.